Hello, fellow Blue Earther. Welcome to another podcast. I'm Lauren Nesbitt, and this afternoon I'm introducing this podcast from underneath Clevedon Pier, looking across the Bristol Channel. In this episode, I chat to Mike Barry, and Mike is one of our speakers at the Blue Earth Summit this year. Chatting to Mike is like having a catch-up with a friend over a cuppa. He makes a genuine effort in breaking down my limited and extremely amateur knowledge on sustainability. And from his professional and personal point of view, he shares what we can do on a day-to-day basis to make a difference. Mike is a leader in sustainable change and he's one of the pioneers of green business in the corporate world. He helped to develop, launch and implement Marks and Spencer's groundbreaking sustainability programme Plan A because, well, there is no Plan B for the one we have. The reason I'm introducing this podcast next to the Bristol Channel is I'm undertaking a Bristol Channel solo in early June. And you can tell that we hit it off quite quickly after discovering that Mike's wife swam a Bristol Channel relay last summer. You look very fresh. Did you go for a 10 mile run this morning and do a Ashlanger primary series and go for a cold water dip? (laughs) I wish I could have done. I can't run in. I used to run so much when I was a kid to explore nature on, on, on my legs, but my knees are bust now. My my advantages, but I walk a lot. I'm out there in the in the sort of hills and the Chilterns every day, right through the winter with a head torch if need be, just getting my mental and physical well being in there. And just mentioning the swimming as well reminds me my my wife is an open water swimmer, Channel Relay across the English Channel and the Bristol Channel. And she goes out in the freezing Thames all through the winter. But boy, seems to do their mental health very good as well. We have a lot in common. I'm swimming the Bristol Channel as a solo on June the 7th. That's brilliant. And and, and to anybody listening, to understand sea swimming, certainly solo, is just such a supreme challenge. And again, I saw my wife do it, four amazing friends, five of them. They did Ilfra Croom to Swansea. And with the tides, they ended up sort of swimming for over 50 kilometres. Didn't quite make it. The tides turned against them two kilometres from Swansea landfall. So they're going to do it all over again this summer. And I'll be there in some kind of support form at the other end with a drink and a hot drink waiting for them. Yes, a hot drink, a dry robe, I hope, a hug, a smile, maybe some jelly babies. (laughs) All of the above. All of the above. So we're talking about sustainability today. From a personal point of view, were there any pivotal moments where you decided that sustainability really mattered to you? Three things probably spring to mind. I mean, let's go back to the 1980s before you were all born and the miners' strike. So I was brought up in Bradford. I went to university in Sheffield and, you know, had a good upbringing, happy upbringing, you know, great parents. And I went to Sheffield and I saw the devastation that the miners' strike wrought on communities across the northern UK. And I just thought... There has to be a better way politically and economically to treat people. You know, the average GDP of the UK probably improved because we shifted so much production to China. But the average happiness and connectedness of our society didn't. So that, that was the first point. The second point was I, I, I went to M&S in 2000, recruited by the chief financial officer, Alison Reid, great, great lady. And she gave me this, this, this mandate saying, Mike, you know, uh, we don't really have a strategy on this. You know, I've brought you in to sort out this environmental stuff. You've no line manager, you've no budget. You get out of my office and sink or swim. Um, and I worked out very rapidly. There was a huge number of people at MS that were looking for leadership on sustainability. My job was to bring them together 
to create a much better way of doing retailing within that paradigm of the, of the time, not, 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 not today's. But that ability to sort of have that blank canvas to paint not just an incrementally less bad MS, but a very different MS on was 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 crucial to me. And a, a real sense that yes, we can do something different here. And the third point in my, my, my life when you know sustainability really came through was when I left MS. I've been there 19 years and I, I helped develop and lead Planet with so many good people, but I had a real feeling it was my baby and helped it grow, grow through to adulthood. And now as an adult parent, you need to step away and, you know, off it goes. And that then opened my eyes to all the other impacts and issues going on to do with beyond retail in all these other industrial part, parts of the economy and the difference, the skills I'd learned in M&S, I could take across to those as well. So there are three moments when I reflect back when I went through a very personal journey to think this is the future I want and these are the skills I need to bring to bear to deliver it as well. And how has your perception of sustainability changed over time? Well, I mean, you know, I was talking about this yesterday. I mean, I've worked for 30 years now in the world of business and environment. Started in 1992 on the back of a chemistry degree with a small environmental consultancy called the Water Research Centre, a lovely little organisation. And the real preoccupation then was sewage pollution. It was about uh, waste, landfill incineration. No discussion about the climate crisis then back in the 1990s. And the focus then was very much about compliance, the rules, and let's just as a business make sure we just get 1% ahead of the rules, but no more. And I think if anything, what I've seen, been most excited about about the last two or three years is a recognition that less bad or risk management just doesn't cut it. The climate crisis, the pollution crisis, the social crisis that the planet faces can only be solved by a radical shift in how we do business. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two is, again, I grew up in a world not just about incrementalism, but in a world of sustainable production. It was about making factories and farms and forests and fisheries and fields behind the scenes less bad. But people never engage the end consumer in asking them, do you want to consume fundamentally different so we can live within the boundaries of the planet? And the second thing I'm seeing now is we're starting, and I've stressed the word starting, to have a conversation about do we should we be consuming as we do? Irrespective of whether products be made well or badly, should we consume as we do? And the third and final observation is, is in the past, I saw lots of businesses trying to solve this on their own. They'd have a nice press release, they'd get out there, sharp elbows, I'm the best, no one else is doing anything. And now people are recognising we're all part of the same failing economic ecosystem that none of us on our own can correct. So businesses have to work together in collaboration, either as a sector, great competitors, Walmart and Tesco's, Pepsi and Coke have got to work together on this. Or in terms of your scope three emissions, which is about bringing thousands of, of suppliers and thousands of business partners together with you, the big corporate, to drive the sustainable change that we need as well. So there are three big changes I've seen across those 30 years. Um, one word I picked up there was incrementalism. What does that mean? That means, in effect, every year business was trying to be 1% less bad than it was the year before. <laughs> just creeping along, just nudging a little bit further each time. And, you know, I, I don't diss it because that was the paradigm of the time. And the businesses that did it were doing way more than everybody else who were either going backwards or becalmed. But what we're seeing now with the accelerating climate crisis, just like Sand Creek there for a moment, there are so many other environmental and social challenges on the planet. But let's use the climate crisis as the anchor. You know, the world's heated by one degree C. We're probably heading for about two and a half to three degrees of heating off for the rest of the century. <laughs> provided that nation states get on to deliver the change we need and look where we are today with dreadful events in Ukraine. 
no one's getting on. So the ability to drive the systemic change we need across the global economy and society probably isn't there. But anyway, let's say two and a half to three degrees of heating over the rest of the century. Let's understand what that means in put that in perspective, because if I took us in a time machine back 23,000 years now to the Ice Age, and the global population had just halved to 123,000 people, population of Norwich, the world had heated, sorry, cooled on average about five to six degrees. So it took five to six degrees of being on average colder to trigger a thousand meters of ice over much of northern Britain, northern North America, and tundra across the rest of Britain. So what does two and a half to three degrees of heating do to a population of eight to nine billion that's living at the end of these just-in-time supply chains where one ship can block the Suez Canal and bring us to our knees? The climate crisis is going to be existential. It's going to be cataclysmic unless we deal with it. And creeping incrementalism being 1% less bad each year just doesn't cut the mustard. We need leaps of 10, 15, 20%, 30, 40% to drive down carbon emissions and also build a new economy and society around that. And that ain't incrementalism. I hear the urgency in your voice, but like most people, I go about my daily life thinking about it, listening to it on the radio, watching it on TV. You know, I've done small things in my life that make me feel like I'm doing something. But actually, sometimes I I wonder, it's just, you know, the years go by and you think, okay, we aren't really shifting. Society hasn't made a massive change. So what do you think it will, what do you think it will take? Well, I mean, firstly, let let me observe that we can't possibly ask individual citizens, you know, whether it's their consumption choices, whether it's their lifestyle choices, to really change the world that we live in now. This is something that big business and big government have got to create a system that solves 80 or 90% of the problem just in the background. So as you go about your life, busy lives, you know, you're raising, you're raising kids, you're traveling, you're working, we've all got busy lives. But in the background, sustainability as an option becomes the default. So you're not having to wade through lots of choices and lots of trade-offs and is it going to cost me more and is it going to spoil my life? It's there. Now, the 10 to 20% that's about us as individuals is still really important because what we do is we give permission to very nervous political leaders and very nervous corporate leaders say, we're with you. So we're not going to turn our back on on you if you start to offer us a plant-based alternative. Just make sure the plant-based alternative to me tastes at least as good as it's exciting and it's at the same price point as well. So all the time we're in this sort of dual dance together across the dance floor where the individual is sending a signal over to say, I do want the big changes. And the heartening thing is, during lockdown, I read 206 different surveys from around the world as to how citizens felt about sustainability. And cutting through it all, three big things stood out for me. One was 70% of people in virtually every marketplace were saying, we're really scared about the future, about the climate crisis, and we want big government and big business to sort it out. And even in the US, that's had very complicated politics over the last five, 10 years, in 2016, that number was 60%. And by the end of the Trump presidency, it was 80%. You might have thought it would go backwards. Actually, more people got more concerned. So in virtually every marketplace, there is a signal from society to big business and government to say, give us some leadership. The second thing is very much about consumption. So it's easy to think, yes, there's a big problem in the Arctic and the Amazon, but I'm here in sort of Accrington or, or Bristol or Glasgow in, in the UK. What possible difference can I make? And people are starting to realise that their choices can send a reinforcing signal. Okay, starting to. And the final point is a generational thing. And it's great talking to you, a different generation from the older me. 
My generation, interestingly, is just as concerned as your generation. The difference being that we tend to sit on the sofa and tut and say something needs to be done by somebody else. And you get off your backside and do something about who you work for, what you consume, who you vote for, how you invest your money. And that's critical. Again, sending these reinforcing signals that we do want change. We're not just moaning about them. You said that um, you felt that political leaders were really nervous. But given how desperate the situation is, I'm, I, I struggle to find why political leaders are so nervous about making big decisions because surely we need to start moving forward rather than standing still and umming and ahhing all the time. I mean, you know, debate and discuss political leadership oxymoron. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's in democracies, governments have got to a point where it's governing by focus group. You know, what's your preoccupation today? Oh, you've, you've, you know, we have got a cost of living crisis. There's no two ways about it. Millions of people in Britain are being pushed towards the very breadline. Again, one of those social crises that we've skimmed across in, in focusing on the climate crisis. But we've got to work on both a, a short-term and a long-term perspective here. We've got to make sure pe- people have a long-term future. We haven't fried the planet, but also got to understand that in a world where 40% of food that we produce never reaches a human mouth. It's insane. A trillion dollars worth of food, two and a half billion tonnes worth And whether it's in um, Africa or whether it's in people using uh, food banks in the UK, it is insane that we cannot feed a global population with what we produce today. So there are solutions out there that we need need to use. But back to the homework question. I mean, politics, I think, has become, both right and left, denuded of courage. And I think what courageous leaders do now is they manage that short-term optic yeah. But they prepared yeah. Britain for a very, and the rest of the world for a very different future. And to a degree, we start to do that. You know, we've set a net zero 2050 goal with the UK, which is great. Nice words on paper. And we've set some good enabling bold targets, no new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. But we hesitate on so many other things. I mean, you look at the shambles of greening British homes. Let's just anchor it there to, to finish the point. Ten years ago, the government set out to fundamentally make British 29 million British homes more energy efficient. We've got the leakiest, um, least energy efficient housing stock in Europe. So let's do it. And if we'd done it, the crisis we've now got with the price of gas and Putin's gas, it wouldn't have been totally solved, but we'd have had a third to half less of a problem because those homes would have been much more energy efficient. We didn't do it. And we are still hooked on gas. So these are the reasons why governments have got to invest into solutions 10 years ago would have helped us today. Solutions today will help us in 10 years' time to come. And the final point would have made those homes for those people more livable. Not just cheaper gas bills and energy bills, but a pleasanter place to be. All this counts. Do you think that your kids view the world differently, both from coming out of COVID, but also both given the fact that you can't really switch on the radio or go, you know, scroll through your Facebook feed without seeing something about the climate crisis and how we're now starting to look at mental health the same as physical health. Yeah, and, and I think that they are very typical of, of this generation. They sort of want to have a good life. They've seen everything that my generation has taken for granted. And then they look at the legacy I'm, I am passing to them, my generation is passing across, and you think, okay, Dad, so you got a good pension and you had a <laughs> job for life. I feel that. You got, you got onto the housing market and you've seen the housing market go up. 
Um, you give me none of that. You are giving me a climate <laughs> crisis. You give me the debt that's come out of the pandemic because we youngsters who were never going to die from it locked ourselves up to protect the oldies. Hang on. What, what kind of legacy are you giving us? And I think one of the great fractures, if we're not careful in the next decade, is a fracture between anybody over 40 and anybody under 40. I'm very simplistic <laughs> saying that. But I am very cross with my generation that moans and whinges, and it's very good at getting organised in elections to make sure it gets pensions improved before anybody else's benefits in Britain. But actually, we'll look back with time and think we were the golden generation, the generation that grew up through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, mm. 2000s, 40, 50 years. Boy, that was relatively easy. And, you know, a few people wouldn't accept that. And I appreciate, again, there are people from my generation tremendously impacted by poverty. But on average, our generation's had it easy. And I think the climate crisis is the sadly icing on the cake of that shocking legacy that we're handing across the fence to your generation. You sound like you've got three very angry but change makers in your house. Do you think that they'll be, you know, continuing to do activism in their own way? And, and I think the crucial word is in their own way. I've been really careful not to impose my personal politics, my personal life view, my personal uh, career journey upon them. I've given, you know, I want them to grow up as three individuals: the bright, the brilliant. The, you know, there's more than any parent can possibly ask of of children but they have to have their own identity and own pathway now as i look over their shoulders i can see all three of them you know eldest doing civil engineering at university daughter going to do do geography and possibly the youngest do something around geography as well in some shape or form they're all heading in this direction but the specific way that they will make a difference in the future i'm not going to dictate i'll let them as adults make the choice Mm. speaking of careers if you had the choice of setting up a small business, would you do it? And if you would, what would you consider? And if you wouldn't, why not? Great question. And it's, it, again, it's this generational thing. My generation grew up within reason that you assumed that you would go and work for a big business. And for many people, you go and work for one big business for the rest of your, your life until you retire with a decent pension. Now, I think this generation partly because it wants it and partly through necessity in this in this sort of gig economy world, has been forced to be more entrepreneurial. And that, in a sense, a ma- again, at a macro level, is really interesting because I've just said that we can't carry on with this creeping incrementalism of less bad traditional big business. We need radical step changes to, to, to how we do business. So if I was starting on my career again, I would absolutely look at being that disruptor, that innovator. And where would I anchor it? The food system. So two great industrial sectors on the planet already, the power sector, the shift from fossil fuel to renewables, and the car industry, the shift from internal combustion to electric, have been torn apart by sustainability. And every boardroom is now exercised by how they respond to that and how disruptors, you know, a Tesla can emerge and go from being worth 50 billion US to a trillion in five years. These disruptors are starting to, again, to radically change the marketplace. The third great sector to be torn apart in the next decade by sustainability is um, foods, and that's started already, whether it's a discussion about shifting from a meat-based diet to a plant-based one, vertical farms, cellular meat production in laboratories, regenerative agriculture, hyper-transparency, drones and satellites that help farmers track and trace everything that's going on in, in their field and manage it better. This is a sector that has to change and is ripe for change and that innovators are starting to move in on and disrupt. So I think it's incredibly exciting. 
to be a sustainability entrepreneur in the next decade. My mum's family are deeply rooted um, in agriculture. And um, I find that they sit on two sides of the fence. The younger generation are quite pro-tech because it means that they're not having to spend hours of their day doing things that technology can just take minutes to do. But then there's the older generation who are very anti it because it's they don't really understand that economy like the data econ- economy it's you know it's slightly they're slightly suspicious of it as a barrier how do you think that people can overcome that great question and, and, and let me just frame it around the food system for a moment and how i think three different food systems are going to emerge in the next decade at one end of, of, of the spectrum is this local production regenerative um direct from farmer to consumer, local food, less impactful food, B Corp food, really interesting. And that your your, your parents, your, your, the elder generation will be much more comfortable with. That's traditional agriculture brought to the surface rather than this industrial system that we have today. At the other extreme is science food. It's food that never sees the outdoors. It never sees a cow. It's grown indoors. It's it actually personalised to your DNA profile because you need something that's different from me. It is radically, radically different from anything that my generation would recognise as food. And many people will recoil from it, but many from your generation will embrace. It's just simpler, it's cleaner, it's potentially cheaper and much less impactful, but in a different way. Those are the two bookends. And then in the middle is what do you do with the great industrial, I say great, the appalling industrial food system that we have in, in between at the moment that serves no one. It's not good for the smallholder, the farmer. It's not good for the planet, and ultimately, in terms of the health of the diet that we eat, it's not good for the end consumer. And again, I, you know, I use the example of Walmart and working with thirty thousand US farmers to get fifty million acres of land regener- working regeneratively by twenty thirty. Those that regenerative farming at scale with Walmart won't be as perfect as a small hold doing it with six cows and one hectare. Be very clear, but you know what? It'd be very much different from the industrial system we have today. So I think there are different pathways into the future. And that we'll all pick the pathway that we prefer rather than this, within reason, in so many ways, monoculture that we have today. We all participate within reason in the same system. I think it will split into three different ways. But there'll be something there for the older generation to hang to because they're comfortable with it. The idea of growing fruit and veg on that scale, you know, without requiring outside space, will that be something that you know, is accessible for everyone. Yeah, really interesting. And and the, 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 there's a really interesting scenario in the States as we speak. Uh, this little startup in the States called Plantagi is trying to raise 9 billion US to bring a third of US lettuce production indoors. And why not? You know, that's it's got a dreadful pro- problem with food poisoning, that industry, because of E. coli, sewage being applied to, to food. It's got big problems with human rights in fields, how, how workers are treated in terms of who are picking it. It's profligate in the, the use of fertilizer, water, pesticides. Look through mechanistically, there's every reason why you would bring that production system indoors, not least because we're also now dealing with these climatic extremes. Too much rain, too little rain in terms of drought, too much heat, all affecting these sort of finely balanced systems that are growing the food. So on the surface, you'd say absolutely makes sense to bring food indoors. With scale, it might be cheaper. It'd certainly be fresher. It'd be picked and moved from the indoor farm to your um, plate within two days rather than 10 or 15. Wow, seductive. 
But then you ask the question, what does it do tra to traditional farming communities right across the world as we start to tr move to this industrial food system? Will it be only owned by a few big corporations distant from your life? Goodness knows what to do with your data and your money. Or will we be able to democratise it so every town, every village has got its own complementary vertical farm indoor system to go with the outdoor systems they draw upon it as well? And these are the big uncertainties that lie ahead, which takes me to a final point and a really important one. In the world of ESG, environmental, social and governance, I see lots of ambition now from big business to become better environmentally. You know, net zero goals, 2040, radically different carbon footprint from today. It's words on paper, it has to be delivered, but I see the, the ambition. On the S of social, I see no ambition. It's about compliance, no human rights abuse, no animal welfare abuse, pay the farmer a minimum amount, and that, that's it. We need the same level of social ambition if we're going to take society with us on this great change. And whether we call it levelling up or green growth or just transition or climate justice, the ability to frame the shifts that we need around human lives and human benefits are crucial. And that's my concern about this, this science base for the new food system. It will actually take food away from people rather than immerse them in it. I'm going to challenge you here just because um, you've talked so much about food. But before I moved to study philosophy, I started on a, an apparel design degree, which was a which was a great degree for me when I was 18. But when I went to uni much later on, I realised it wasn't feeding me in the way that my, I needed my brain to be fed. Um, and <laughs> it was quite a niche course. There wasn't a lot of us on it, but everybody's aspirations was sort of to, you know, go and work for Nike, go and work for, you know, a massive business because Nike's sort of seen as this super sexy business with great marketing. And then after the first year, it was quite apparent that just by learning about the apparel industry, actually, it's really not cool and sexy to be killing the planet and, you know, for factories to be collapsing. And it pops up on my Instagram constantly, you know, activism about the apparel industry in in can we treat kind of food and apparel on the same on the same thinking wave in in this in the sense that the same sustainability kind of rules i guess or frameworks are applied yeah oh, oh goodness they are so adjacent in people's lives i mean food and fashion we all interact with every day you know, you make fat, you make choices whether you've got a large wardrobe or not. You choose what you put on in the morning. You choose what you eat. You buy food every day. Hopefully, you don't buy fashion every day, but you buy it on a fairly, fairly frequent basis. Many people do. So there's lots of reasons why there's learning across the two. And let me just sort of having sort of defined three food futures, local, science, and scaling regenerative. Let's just try and do the same for fashion and just have a conversation about that. So what's the equivalent of local regenerative agriculture for fashion? It's not to consume fashion as we do today. It's wear things at least 30 times. It's to make sure that you never, you very rarely buy new, that you buy resold or through charity or through thrift or you repair or you rent. There is a whole set of solutions to emerge there. At the other extreme, what's science fashion? 3D printed clothing. See, what you probably see in the future, you know, when one ship can block, block the Suez Canal, you could see clothing manufacture being reshored from somewhere like Bangladesh to the UK to be 3D printed in the factory or warehouse that's run by one or two people in white coats, but not thousands of people lent over a sewing machine. So you'll have destroyed not brilliant jobs in Bangladesh, in fact, jobs that can be done very badly, but can be done okay as well. 
You take those jobs away from Bangladesh and you replace them with no jobs at all in the UK, apart from one or two very skilled technicians. So what is that system that you develop which is truly circular for clothing, which is much better for the environment, but never really involves human beings? And again, huge implications from doing that. And then there's that great volume bit in the middle. Even for your generation, I, I see lots of calls for arms to reject fast fashion. And then I see Instagram and I see all the fast fashion brands like Sheen growing fast and still succeeding. And I ask the question, are you really willing to change as individuals, as 18, 20, 25-year-olds, and stop consuming stuff and wearing it once on Insta look good and then moving it on? <laughs> I think it's all about looking cool. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what would I know about that? I'm, I'm not cursed with that need to, to, to try and look good. But what we've got to do is you've got to send a signal as a generation to the big producers and to government to say, we don't want to live in that world. We want to be excited by the clothing we wear, but excite me in a different way that doesn't just involve buying loads of cheap crap that falls apart after a couple of wears. It's made from dreadfully polluting raw materials, which is what we've got now. Um, if a circular economy is is the goal, um how does a capitalist society exist in that framework? Yeah. We're getting to the heart of it now. <laughs> the elephant in the room consumption. So, 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 so let, me, let me answer it in two ways. I mean, one, let me just frame why the circular economy has not taken off as fast as the net zero economy. And remember all my reservations, concerns and kicking of the system for not doing enough of net zero. But let's just for now say it's relatively ahead of circularity. And that's because on the global scale, for corporations, net zero now has a, an architecture. IPCC reports saying this is the one definitive view of science, COP process, bring governments together, national governments setting net zero goals and nationally determined contributions. You've then got sector initiatives like Race to Zero bring businesses together to change the system. You've got innovators like Tesla bringing new electric yeah, batteries into the system to, to, to disrupt the, the norm. You've got an architecture of science-based targets initiative, CDP, World Benchmarking Alliance, TCFD, that allow there are a set of rules that businesses have to follow. So from top to bottom on circle on carbon, I've got something I can follow as a business to a new new place. Circularity have none of that. In fact, the European Union yesterday issued a new circular economy action plan, which for the first time globally starts to set out what this new system might look like. Hooray! That starts to give business the certainty to start to make some big steps to change how we do it. That then takes me to the second part of the answer, which is consumption, the elephant in the room. And I said right in the earliest framing, we have to have a conversation with people about consuming very differently. And we live in a world where every, virtually every boardroom that I would know today wants to sell more stuff next year than this stuff this year. And if they didn't, the chief executive sacked and the investor would, you know, sell them to somebody else. And we have to have this paradigm where we can explain to business that you can create value and economic value without physical growth. And, you know, we, we've seen it in the shift from DVDs to streaming music, haven't we? But we've got two or three sectors, particularly technology, the constantly updatable, uh, you know, mobile phone that, you know, everybody's hooked on changing every six months, fashion we've already discussed. We've got to find a way of helping people have the outcomes that they want, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't involve just consuming physical stuff and changing something every day and every week. 
And some of that is about marketing. And I think it's really interesting that the marketing industry is being dragged into this debate, to a degree kicking and screaming. But marketing fuels every economic sector's ability to operate unsustainably. It sells a dream to say, look, your phone's six months out of date. You don't look cool. Get the next one. And interestingly, the marketing industry has got itself now, it's been held to account for who it's working for. So if you're working for a big American fossil fuel company, in effect, greenwashing its image, you should be held to account as much as the oil company for helping them do that. So the service industry, the management consultants, the, the um, marketing industry, the lawyers, the PR companies that hide behind the scenes have been dragged into the limelight because they too are fueling the consumption system as well. But my final point on consumption is we can't just ban it. We can't just turn around to people and say, I know you, you, you used to buy lots of clothes. There's a law now saying you can't buy clothes. We have to make the alternative, the sustainable alternative, just as aspirational, just as convenient, same price point, clear environmental benefits that people can understand why they're doing it differently. But if we just give them a, 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 a sort of a sackcloth message to say, you know, just live, a, you know, for you, in your eyes, a miserable life to save the planet, it ain't going to happen. And that's why I'm interested in things like Tesla that's made the electric car not just the right thing to do morally, but aspirationally. I grew up in a generation 1980s where people wanted a Porsche or a BMW to say they'd arrived in life. Now, within reason, it's an electric car, a performance electric car that says you've arrived in life. And rightly, lots of people would challenge me there and say, yeah, but Mike, it's still a piece of metal on four rubber wheels that's stacked in a traffic jam, even though it's electric. We need to get people on public transport or using Zoom to do business calls. Absolutely. But we also need to give people something to own and to aspire to have as well, the journey that we've got ahead. Speaking of um, Tesla, what do you think about the billionaire's race to space? Oh, don't start me. You know, I mean, I mean, a, a little bit of me says that human progress will always be should always be based upon stretching human capability. So you look at Formula One, and you know, so much has come out of Formula One that's helping make today's mainstream cars more efficient. You know, we, we learn from that. Space exploration we need as a society. You know, everything that we put up in space could be used to point back down at Earth and tell us. Um, the problems we, in, in terms of how we're managing Earth, remote sensing, satellites, etc., used for good. The digital connection of societies, you know, it's been it's transformational for some of the poorest parts of the world to be connected with the the internet. Um, we we should always also stretch our understanding into space, even if it can't be turned into a, a monetary value today. Understanding what's happened in the solar system around us, where we came from, that human curiosity should never be stopped. But three or four. Um, billionaires racing into space in their phallic, um, symbolic uh, metal tubes, it's no use to anybody. It's not stretching the needs of our curiosity. It's not bringing us solutions that will help us manage the planet better. It's a distraction. And I wish they'd spend the money that they've spent there on things that would have really helped a society and a planet that's been brought to its knees. So I'm right with you. West bloody time. <laughs> how do you say? How do you say positive? You know, after all the things we've talked about and, and hearing a very well-contained despair over the billionaire's race to space, how do you stay positive about the future that we're headed towards? I mean, everybody's personal greatest strength is their per personal greatest weakness. So my greatest strength is hopeless optimism. You know, you know, we live on this planet. I think it's heading in a very bad way geopolitically, socially, and environmentally. 
And I do believe that I've got a responsibility, not least because of the relative um, privilege I've had in my life and uh, you know my, my relative age, is to try and correct that system. And I never give up. And I, I could find lots of reasons just to sort of give up and go and tend an allotment and do lots of walking and switch off from society. And I, I think, no, every one of us has got an ability, however small, to put a shoulder to the wheel to drive the change that we so desperately need. So that's that, That's the, the meta answer. The second thing is, I think, that drives me is curiosity. I'm just infinitely curious about the world. I just read all the time about what's happening in the FT or The Economist or The Guardian, what's happening on social media. I'm, I'm a maven, you know, magpie for gathering up, you know, what's happening in the world and then trans, trying to translate to solutions. But like everybody, I have some really dark moments where I've got to go out and do that long walk and just reflect and think and regroup and re-energize myself to say, no, it's not going to beat me. As long as I'm up walking around this planet, I'll be seeking to make it a better mm. place. So other than walking, you said it was in the Chilterns, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What else do you do to chill out outside, to switch off, to reconnect? To, I, I draw... I never totally switch off. It's, again, it's a strength, it's a weakness. Um, so I walk a lot, but when I'm walking, I'm reflecting, I'm, I'm putting my thoughts in place uh, You know about the very topics that we've been discussing. I cycle a lot in the summer, I mountain bike a lot, um, really enjoy that out with mates. The little bit of me time I get, I sit with four or five mates on a Friday tea time at five o'clock in my local pub and have a couple of hours of just putting the world to rights. Nothing about what we've discussed now. It's about football or whatever it may be. And that little bit of me time, I really treasure and cherish with good friends. And the ability just to switch off for everything we've been talking now is also crucial, a little oasis away from it all as well. And let me just stress that point about local, because you know different generations connect with different things. This is my point about the E and the S. The S, the, the pub, for, for some of us in my generation, <laughs> incredibly important just to go and walk into a place where everybody knows who you are. You wave to people, you sort of half know, you have a drink, you have a laugh, you leave. And that ability to create that community spirit, and lots of people do it in different ways for me, come on. But whether it's the Women's Institute or the local sort of, you know, amateur railway society or a supporters club for a sport sports team it doesn't matter but the ability to enable people to have those human connections and again politically i would say that we've spent 20 30 years taking people's local identities away mm, from them yeah i agree and i go right back to the minor strike that grew up through the 1980s the loss of steel jobs textile jobs to china and we gave nothing not we took away not just the wages of those communities but their identities and guess what we got brexit and trump didn't we and I looked at the new shift to the low-carbon economy, the sustainable economy we also desperately want and think it has to put humanity and community and connection back at the heart of it and not just run it as a series of global tax-avoiding corporations who are less impactful on the planet than the predecessors but do nothing to further societal connection. I definitely missed... The whole pub thing. And I, I work evenings um, because I'm a swim coach. So I don't, um, I definitely missed out on that. But my community is the, at the lake at Clevesen, Marine Lake, and, you know, in the sea. And yeah. that cold water, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it wild swimming because Clevesen Marine Lake isn't wild. Um, but that 
has kind of exploded in the last five years and you can go anywhere in the country now and, and connect with somebody on Facebook or Instagram and be like hey I'm here I'm outside I'm gonna do this swim like can you come and support or do you want to go and you know sit in this waterfall and have a chat and have a coffee <laughs> after or something like that so I think communities do come in different forms um, and I also think what COVID has accelerated is just the fact that spending outdoors, well, spending time outdoors is free. And, you know, Cleveland Marine Lake for me is free. It's a free space. It's not, it's not private. And I think when you get that buzz, when you get out the water or you go out to the Chilterns and walk outside, you realise that you don't have to spend money on it. It's, you know, it's out there and you can just put your feet on the grass or, you know, put your head underneath five degrees in the winter time, and the buzz that you get from it is absolutely phenomenal. You, you're spot on. And, uh, you know, everybody gets their sense of community in, in so many different directions. And I, I think what's happened with globalisation over the last 20, 30 years is we've privatised or monetized experience. Yeah, yeah. Or tried to. We have. So the ability for communities to self-create themselves, self-run themselves, you know, the, the exchange there is about what you put into that community, not the exchange of the pound sign, is so powerful. And I want the new future that we create, create the sustainable future, to be utterly about people and democracy and connection rather than these big faceless corporations that, you know, they have a nice plan on a website, but actually what do they do? for you, for your family, for your street, your community. That's what matters. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.